Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So emerging markets once again struggling to stop the rot, the route showing no sign of letting up with most currencies weakening and an index of stocks nearing a bear market. Joining us now to discuss from London is Alberto Gallo, Algebra's Investments Head of Macro Strategies and Partner. Good morning to you, Alberto. Walk us through what you're seeing in emerging markets this morning. Uh, good morning, John. So this is the realization of a um, 10-year-long trend in emerging market capital inflows uh, reversing. Um, obviously, it's it's not easy to make um, you know uh, one group out of all the different countries. But what we have seen initially is Turkey and Argentina, which are the weakest from a deficit point of view, being um, abandoned by investors. Uh, in the last few days, other um, less fragile countries have joined the trend. For example, Brazil, which face, faces elections uh, next month with two populists potentially going into the ballot, um, you know, left-wing Haddad and right-wing Bolsonaro. And South Africa as well has joined the, the, the sell-off uh, with very high exposure to commodities in China. And eventually, Asian economies, which have been the most resilient, with Chinese savings, you know, and 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 uh, and you know, less market sensitivity, uh, remaining a, a, the bedrock of the Asian economies are starting to also um, be weaker. With uh, Indonesia in particular, um, we think this is driven by the Fed tightening liquidity conditions, but also by the wave of populism, which is uh, spreading across uh, not just developed markets but also EM. If you think about Turkey, uh, Brazil, you know South yeah. Africa, in many countries you have. Um, you know, anti-economic uh, proposals being promised to the electorate. So, Alberto, if this is the beginning of a 10-year unwind, it suggests it's got a long way to go. I do think that we are starting to see value in some areas, but it's early to call it a bottom uh, in EM. There are still many areas which are um, very expensive. Uh, different countries have different debt problems, but the um, the one common denominator is that the stock of debt has not gone down in the last 10 years. So Turkey or South Africa or Brazil have a private debt problem across companies and banks. Uh, Argentina has a sovereign debt problem, a very complex sovereign debt structure. If the peso continues to depreciate, uh, right. also external <clears throat> debt GDP goes up and, and, um, and so on. So there, there will be opportunities, but we're barely yeah. at the long-term average. And John, we see Brazilian real open, what, 845-ish, 830-ish, and then peso supposed to open at 9. A little after 9 Eastern. Yeah, something like that. They're closed right now and the rest of them churning. Alberto, you're a bond guy. How do you use foreign exchange in EM? I mean, when you walk in, and as John and I know, you've got three Bloomberg logons, you've got the usual 10, 12 screens. How do you actually use foreign exchange? within your ability to not lose money in bonds? So let's say you have you have three instruments to to hedge. I mean, you have the FX, then you have local interest rates for countries with a local market, and then you have hard currency bonds. 
Now, countries that have a um, sovereign debt uh, problem or sovereign debt overhang like Argentina you know, are going to be particularly hurt in their hard currency market. So dollar debt uh, is now trading uh, at between 60 and 70 cents uh, on the dollar. Uh, for countries, for example, like Turkey, which have a private debt problem, a, pr a lot of private leverage across consumers, banks, corporates, uh, you have to think about the reaction function of the central bank. So in Turkey, the currency has been hurt by um, outflows from investors, but the central bank has not reacted, also because there's so much leverage in the in the economy, and President Erdogan does not want to trigger a domestic credit crunch. So interest rates have remained low, and the currency has taken most of the hit. In a country like Russia, where the central bank is more independent mm -hmm. and has ammunition to fight inflation, uh, local interest rates are the ones that will go up, while the currency will not depreciate as much uh, because the central bank is fighting against the currency depreciation. So we use a mix of these instruments to, yeah. uh, to protect uh, ourselves, and we have had a net short position. We continue to have a net short position across EM. Alberto, the good news for anyone with exposure to American assets is that the data in the United States continues to stand up. Um, I don't want to gloss over the fact that we had a factory ISM yesterday that printed a 14-year high. I don't see any evidence outside of the anecdotal evidence that gets presented to us now and then that the U.S. economy has been hit by any of these troubles. The U.S. economy is in the first round of, uh, of trade wars, and the first round is actually good for the U.S. economy um, because you are basically shifting demand uh, from uh, foreign goods to domestic goods. You get domestic companies and factories to produce goods that were otherwise imported by China or other EMs. So initially, it's good. What we need to understand is whether the trade war gets to a, to a global stage where you have a retaliation from China. Uh, but you know, for, the, for the coming months, what we see is still good data in the U.S. We see a divergence between the U.S. and the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, the opposite of last year's synchronized growth environment. Uh, also, European data is not doing that bad. It's actually recovered in the last few months. Uh, but obviously, Europe is much more affected by EM sentiment. Okay, but, the, um, but the, where's the profit opportunity in bonds? On a simplistic, non-Alberto Gallo basis, where can I get price up, yield down in bonds? Okay, so the first thing that continues to happen, in our view, is in currencies, is, is the dollar continues to appreciate. In bonds, you have to try to you know, catch the bottom in, in bonds that have fallen a lot. Uh, we think that uh, you know, for EM, um, we're not at the bottom yet. Even in Argentina, where bonds are at 60, 70 cents, you know, there's still a lot, there's still longs that are trapped in, in various yeah. countries. Where we think there's some value, though, is in some European countries, which have sold off in tandem with the M, like you know Spain or, or Italy, uh, you have high yield bonds, um, double B, single B rated companies, which have not too much EM exposure. They're, they're more European and they're trading at seven, eight percent in euros, which is equivalent to 10, 11 percent in dollars. Uh, so these are two, three year maturity um, bonds. So you're betting on the absence of a, of a recession, right. the absence of a default cycle in the next two, three years, which is a reasonable bet, even though the cycle okay. could slow down. Alberto, we've got to leave it there. We're running out of time. Always want more time with Alberto Gala with Algebras uh, this morning.
10 years on from Lehman, we're sort of beginning to dive into that with some look back, but far more importantly, a look forward. It is a wonderful time to speak with John Taft. There have been, what is it, John Farrell, 842,000 books that have been written on the He's crisis. still counting. I'm still <laughs> counting. And there have been some jewels along the way, and one of them was John Taft's stewardship, which showed up on my desk on an April where I made up my book of the summer in about, oh, I think, John, I looked at it for 15 minutes. And it was a primal scream by you for intelligent governance on Wall Street. What's the Taft scoreboard look like here 10 years on? Well, as, as you say, the book was about uh, what I felt were stewardship failures that contributed to the financial crisis. And ironically, today, 10 years later, uh, my point of view is that what we were able to do by way of response to the financial crisis, when I say we, I'm talking about societally, everything from presidents to Congress to regulators to market participants to secretaries of the Treasury to Fed chairman, what we were able to do to reboot the U.S. economy and to put the financial system on safer, sounder, more stable footing is one of the most significant stewardship success stories of my professional career. So 10 years out, we have converted stewardship failure to stewardship success. And I don't think that story is being told enough uh, as we approach the 10th anniversary of the Lehman bankruptcy. Within that success, and I go back to an essay, folks, I'll put out on Twitter here from laureate Michael Spence, of the risks of regulation, and one of the risks in the brilliant Michael Spence essay is trying to observe stuff that's unobservable. Uh, yeah. What's still unobservable out there? Well, that yeah, the more colloquial expression of that is you never see the bullet that kills you. And um, one of the things that the financial uh, uh, regulatory infrastructure changed after the financial crisis was to set up a couple of groups by acronyms FSR, FSOC, and others, the purpose of which was to scan the horizon and try to identify in advance excesses we're building up. Well, where might those be today? I think if you were going to look anywhere today, you would look possibly at the shadow banking system because clamping down on regulated financial institutions mm -hmm. like bank, we have merely squeezed risk over into less regulated sectors. And we now see hedge funds and asset managers engaging in direct lending, making riskier loans than, uh, quite frankly, makes sense for banks to make today. So our excess is building up there, possibly, certainly the dollar value of loans being made by unregulated entities uh, is going up. And the other one that I worry about a little bit is the world of ETFs. Massive flows, obviously, into ETFs. Yeah. They're safe and sound for the most part, but where you have ETFs invested in portfolios of illiquid securities, I think you've got a mismatch that could be an issue. Are you saying this is, this is more to do with fixed income than, say, equities? Any any type of a liquid asset, uh, it could be it could be various types of private equity, sub debt, um, anything that doesn't trade on an exchange, if owned by an ETF that does trade on an exchange, will set up a, a mismatch in liquidity. And then what happens in a time of stress? Investors expect to be able to go put in a price, get their trade executed. Yeah, the ETF can't sell the securities they own. 
that's a potential source of stress. So who holds on to the problem at the end of it if that does unravel in the way that you worry? Well, I think we've seen that movie over and over. Ultimately, it's it's the investor. Um, when uh, Tom and I were talking on, on the show this morning about uh, the bullet that almost killed us 10 years ago, it was a tiny little fund called the Reserve Money Market Fund, $60 billion. It broke the buck because it owned $800 million of Lehman Brothers commercial paper, and it wasn't able to sell it at a price greater than zero. So shareholders rushed to the gate and the fund directors suspended redemptions. All appropriate. But what it did was prompt a crisis in confidence. Investors couldn't get their money out. They ended up holding the bag. You could have looked at auction rate securities during the financial crisis, same thing. So ultimately, it will be investors who end up holding the bag if we have a liquidity problem with ETFs. John uh, Taft, thank you so much. He is vice chair at Baird uh, with us uh, this morning. John, is Nathanson here to hook up my cable TV? He might that- be. He might be. You know, might maybe be the other half of Moffat. Maybe Moffat does that to, to hook up your cable TV. You know, gets the router thing and the modem thing going. Is this about your move? Yeah, is, my is move. I thought Moffat was coming. Your big move. Moffat was coming over to you know no. hook up the TV. Yeah, he's got a truck roll coming out of that. <laughs> <way to talk>. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> Michael Nathanson dropping by the studio of Moffat Nathanson, fanning partner and senior research analyst. Michael, you know how people set this up: a grilling on Capitol Hill. Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey land in Washington, D.C., and Congress goes after them. Is that actually what happens today? No. When I when I read what Senator Warner is looking to do today, he's looking for solutions. You know, it's I think it's past the grilling point. It's what are you going to do for 18 that you didn't do for 16 so that we have elections that are legitimate and, and not, not impacted by foreign actors, right? The, the grilling has been happening. Um, maybe there'll be some political debate about are you censoring, you know, your right wing, left wing commentary? But I think this is about Warner looking for help on election elections in 18. Where's the humility? Humility has not been there yet. Yeah, it's, I, I, I'm still waiting. I mean, I'm not saying it won't happen, but it's a bunch of guys out in San Francisco. They've all made more money than God. They're all, you know, earned it, blah, blah, blah. But there's zero humility. I mean, it's not this is not Rick Wagoner right. driving a compact Ford from Detroit or wherever, Dearborn, wherever, down to Washington, is it? Right. No, but you know, you have different. You have two people on on stage today who've not been there. So yep. you have Jack Dorsey and and, and Cheryl Sandberg, and, and they've not been in front of Senate, so and and the House. I feel I think they'll probably be a little bit more contrite in in how they how they see the world. I want to talk about your most recent research note and why you've downgraded the stock. I'm talking about Facebook, of course. I want to begin though by talking a little bit about Cheryl Sandberg as she comes over to Washington D.C. How would you grade her performance this year? I think you grade the whole, she and the whole team with a with a C or C minus, right? That um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal was really bad because it looked like they totally disavowed what the FTC was asking them to do back in 2013, right? There was a settlement, and for that to happen, and to it happened back in 15, really. They knew this was going on for a while, and, yeah. and I would say, and you you guys talked about this around the earnings season. They're they're 
we don't know, the street doesn't know how truthful the company is when they guide anymore, right? So they've they played this game the past couple of years of guiding high on costs and coming in low and guiding low on revenues coming in high, right? So there's a real lack of um, credibility, I, I'd say, from the street's you know, view at Facebook. And when you talk to the company privately, you still don't get a lot of great answers about what's actually happening, right? And for a company, it's industry really is a black box in this industry. You don't get a lot of details on yeah. earnings calls or in the, in, in, the, in the financials. Trust has a big part of it. So I would give them all C minuses, right? And you, that's- you raised this in your note, and I think it's really interesting. They've not just guided us lower on revenue growth. They've guided us wildly lower on margins right. as well. Do you believe the guidance? Just as an analyst, do you believe the guidance? I believe the guidance for the next 12 months, and that's why we downgraded the stock, right? So we think what's gonna, they have to do, to, to Tom's point about what they, have, what they have to show Washington, they have to show lower margins, right? They have to say... We now have 20,000 human beings looking at every single piece of content, right? They have to show all the regulators around the world that they take these threats seriously, and that means spending more. They also have to, they also have to spend on video. They are, they've spent money on video, but we've seen no evidence that their investment in live or watch has really got anywhere, right? So they have to spend more money in the next 12 months. At the same time, what surprised <clears> us was the revenue growth guidance in Q3 is actually real. The decel is real. If you look at it 12 months from now, you're going to have lower margin and lower revenue growth, lower profit growth. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fact. But right? they're not just spending for the sake of it to get margins lower. You're saying there's a structural shift in the business model here towards paying up for third-party content. Right. That was the thing. You know, you're a big soccer fan, football fan, right? Yeah. You know, so they bid on Premier. Oh, don't I know, I bring know. it up. Well, he's gone there. Let him well, go there. Just well, let him do well, it, Tom. He's our guest. <laughs> well, the World Cup, I think, is now over, right, Tom? Has it yeah. ended officially? So, you know, they they bid on um, football rights, right? They, they, they bought... They bought La Liga rights for India, and they bought Premier League rights for yeah. Southeast Asia. Those are not going to return anything, right? They were bidding for cricket rights last year, so they're now showing themselves to be a bigger bidder for sports rights. You know, I, I look at this, and there's like eight ways to go with you right now, but you mentioned something. John, if you want to go a different tact here with Michael Nathanson, tell me. You mentioned video. Right. And is it going to make money? I've seen endless articles, Digiday, doing a wonderful series of articles on, oh, by the way we're not sure it makes money does video make money ha the um the video that's been user generated content obviously makes money right so the first first incarnation of the model is of course you make money because basically on youtube and facebook you're not paying for any content right it's, it's a wonderful model when the, when the when the video is supplied by other people yeah we you know tom we think it's going to be margin it's, it's a degradation of margins whether or not it makes money it's all about the micro economics of every single deal you've done, but in general, it's a bad margin, tra- you know, transfer for going from free content to exactly content, right, and that that's what hit us, right? We stepped <clears> back <throat> and we said, look, and we we've had this issue for like nine yeah. months now, which is when we talk to people on the West Coast who are selling content, they say to us, Facebook doesn't have much of a clue what they want to do in video. Which said to me, they're going to have to overpay to make a splash, right? I mean, and by overpaying, it's going to lead right. to margin degradation. And John, this this reminds me of AOL a million years ago. I used to keep saying, I, I say to people, where's a spreadsheet that shows me profit in AOL down the yep. road? I just don't see it in the video. I mean, so, I just don't. So charts look really, really good on radio. I'm so going to get you to imagine this chart oh, you're just killing if you can. It. You're so, killing it's, so it's revenue growth percentage revenue growth 
and over time at Facebook, it started to look like, as you described, Michael, like a valley. And then you have this sort of switch towards mobile and they come out of the other side of the valley and revenue growth starts picking up again. Now we're starting to paint this picture of dipping back into a valley. What gets us out of the valley again? Well, that, that's exactly, it's funny we're on radio, that's exactly the image I tried to do in the research. I wanted to show there were these waves and the waves were mo, you know, desktop, mobile, and then Instagram. So it keeps us out of the valley in the near term. It's probably Instagram keeps on going well. And then for Tom's family, there's a whole stories switch to stories. So people are using their their Instagram to actually put together a series of, of, of images that becomes a story. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So they're basically trying to get you hooked on stories. So not just one image, like a day in the life, right? I should but, point out John Francine Lacroix uses this brilliantly. Yeah. So story, done a lot of work with it. So stories are growing. But yeah. but to, to the real, you know, so that's our issue. We don't see a third act, right? Is a third act WhatsApp? Is it going to be payments, right? And and mm -hmm. is, is it going to be video? So I don't see the third act. And that's been my problem for about a year now. I don't see the third act coming. So as you right. point out, though, at the moment, they're incredibly dominant. They have, what, the four most downloaded apps? Right in the world, on yes. the planet. Yes. How do they get those four apps to stop looking like four separate companies? Yeah, that's, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. So do yeah. they face the breakup question continually over the next several years if they can't? That was one of our five risks, that that at some point the regulators will mm -hmm. say, look, you guys have owned four <laughs> dominant apps. It's time to to break it up. And you know, there are people out right. there who've been saying that this, this whole year. Mixing yeah. your work with Craig Moffat, what's the cord cutting trend? I hear people trot out the phrase cord cutting, but usually they're not informed. Inform yeah. us. Okay, thank you for, <clears throat> for for that pivot. So we've been writing about this for, for a while now. Cord cutting is not as bad as you think because of these virtual MVPDs, DirecTV Now, Hulu, Sling, they're taking up the slack. They're picking up 80% of the true cord cutting. So the cord cutting rate in America is less than 1%. Less than 1%. Because they're just going to alternatives. Right. And there's a lot of discounting going on. Now people mm -hmm. will say to us, our clients will say to us, well, Michael, those bundles you just named make no money whatsoever. So they're great that they're picking up the slack, but there's no economic model. You talk about Facebook's move to video. You know, Sling and DirecTV now really don't make any money. So even though they're they're cutting, the, they're slowing the grade of cord cutting, they may, they, they may not be long-term solutions, but we've been surprised right. that things are not nearly as bad as right. the bears want to want to tell. Okay, you. Michael Nathanson, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate today uh, getting us started. A lot of good conversations. This is a good and perfect time to speak to Julia Coronado, macro policy perspective. Dr. Coronado has been hugely beneficial in giving us wisdom on the Fed and on the American economy. Julia, in your, in your recent note, once again, the shocking idea of 200,000 jobs that we will see on Friday. And yet the clarion call of all the mail that John Farrell gets and the little bit of mail I get is where's the rage growth? If I take wages and benefits, ECI, healthcare benefits, roll them right into wages, we're really not back to decent wage growth if you assume 3% inflation. We aren't. We're seeing very subdued real wage gains for American workers. And I think, Tom, the fact that we can add 200,000 jobs a month combined with 
subdued wage growth speaks to the fact that we're just not in a tight labor market yet. It's tightening. It's a good labor market. It's becoming a better labor market. But there's really no hiring constraints and evidence yet. How can you say we're in a tight labor market? It's sub 4% unemployment. And, you know, it just anecdotally, I don't see it. I mean, walking around the streets of New York, I I see a lot of people that really, really would like a job or a better yes. job. Yes, exactly. So I think that despite the fact that the unemployment rate is moving to historic lows, we still have people that want to work and they're showing up and putting, you know, putting their uh, applications in. And that is one of the forces holding down wage growth. Uh, so we've got a ways to go. And that's good news for the Fed. That means they can go slow and yes. be careful and cautious. Uh, and not slam on the brakes on this economy. And, and that's good news. So, Julia, are you essentially saying that the one data point to really track whether this labour market is tight or not is wages and nothing else? I think wages is, is taking front and centre right now, yes. I mean, look, prices are everything, right? Prices are what clears the market. And so if prices aren't rising, then uh, then you don't you still have some excess supply. So um, I think that that's at the end of the day, where we're going to see real indications that the labor market is tightening up is in, is in wage yeah. growth. So there was a big discussion about this over the weekend uh, that Jackson Hole took place about whether the unemployment rate should guide monetary policy. What are the flaws of that? Yeah. Oh, there's huge flaws of that. I mean, the frictional unemployment that we call the natural rate of unemployment, we don't know what it is. We can't observe it. It changes over time depending on the characteristics of the economy. There's every reason to think with an older, more educated workforce and better technology to match workers to jobs that the natural rate of unemployment is a lot lower than it was in the past. So, again, how will we know when we get there? Wage growth will be one of the key indicators. Julia, Robert Samuelson wrote a brilliant essay. He's always brilliant, but he wrote a brilliant essay in the Washington Post this week. I'll put it out on social, folks. On health care is part of our compensation. And it's loaded uh-huh. with statistics and all that. But we really don't see the, we don't psychologically see the benefit packages that are out there, do we? Well, the, the employment cost index that you mentioned earlier does try and capture the benefits that workers, the value of the benefits workers are getting uh, from health care benefits and other benefits like paid time off and 401ks. And that's also rising at a subdued pace. So it's not like health care benefits are where workers are getting their compensation. Um, those are more or less stable over time. Uh, we've seen a little yeah. bit, we've, we've seen them get a little bit more expensive lately. Um, but by and large, it's yeah. not like employers are beefing up benefits. The single sentence from Robert Samuelson, high private insurance premiums condemn millions of workers to stagnant or falling incomes. Dr. Coronado, thank you so much. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.